0: Right, well, good evening, everybody. Thank you for coming. Uh, it's good to see you. Um, if this is your first time, my name is Jez, and I'm one of the leaders of the church here. Uh, you're very welcome. Let me just explain what you've come to. By the way, it's very unfair that there's a, a central table here that's got no one on it. So poor Andrew's going to be talking mostly to an empty table. Uh, <laughs> sorry? Just stand on the table, yes. Uh, Okay, so uh, for a number of years, um, a friend of of mine called Paul and myself, we've been gathering in Cookmere Inn Pub uh, every month or so to have just roundtable discussions about various things. As a church leader, I'm a Christian and my friend Paul is an atheist and a university professor. And so we have lots of conversations about lots of topics from creation to sexuality to the freedom of the will to last time we were talking about heaven and hell and eternity and things like that. And just we really enjoyed the setting to be able to discuss ideas, although we're very different from one another and have different opinions on lots of things. To be able to open up discussion and to learn from each other, we found to be very beneficial. Um, I must say, Paul couldn't come tonight. He's ill, unfortunately. Um, So he's not a mythical person. Um, But as part of our our monthly discussions... um, We've introduced what we've called the Inquire Lecture Series, where every few months we invite a speaker from the outside to talk about a topic that we think a few more of us would be interested in. Um, Tonight we've we've picked the topic of transgender and going to be discussing that together, implications for society, implications for us, uh, and also for myself as a Christian, how the whole concept of transgender and the language surrounding um, trans issues, how that affects my way of seeing the world as a Christian, And um, we've invited a good friend of mine, Andrew Bunt, who speaks on this regularly, and uh, I've I've grandly introduced you on there as a speaker and author, because I know you've written at least one book, Um, and so I thought, you know, sell you a bit more. Uh, So Andrew lives in Hastings, and as I said, speaks and writes on this issue quite widely uh, in different formats And so in a moment, I'll invite him up. He's going to speak for 45 minutes or so, unpacking this topic for us. There'll then be a a brief break to stretch our legs and to answer some questions with the people around you and your tables to crack some topics open together. And then after that, we'll have half an hour or so of Q&A with Andrew. Uh, just to say, on the table at the back there, there is a clipboard, and if you'd like to be kept in the loop about future Inquirer evenings, discussions, or lectures that we do, please do fill out your information there. We'd love to make contact with you and let you know about those events. Um, but I think that's all from me. Let's, let's put our hands together and welcome Andrew as he comes to speak to us. Andrew.
1: Thank you very much. Good evening, everybody. It's nice to meet Seafood, so Seafood, this church in Seafood was the first church outside of my home church that I ever came to to speak at. Um, so I feel like I'm coming back to the beginning of a four-year journey, and as just said, said, I have the real privilege of traveling quite a lot, and this is one of the things that I get to and so love to talk about, really. And I guess for us in the room here, coming tonight to an evening about transgender, there might be various reasons why we've come. It might be that you are a Christian, a follower of Jesus, and you are thinking, well, What should we think about people who identify as transgender? How should we respond to the different viewpoints and the discussions going on in our world if we want to faithfully follow Jesus in that context? And that's kind of one of the things we might come asking, and I think some of what we talk about will answer that tonight. It might be you come here not as a Christian or not from a kind of faith perspective, but you're aware this is a controversial topic a topic which currently and increasingly has been discussed in the world around us, and we're not quite sure we understand it maybe, we're not quite sure what to think about it. And so it's a, just a good opportunity to stop, to think about it, and to engage with it. And so what I'm going to try and do as I kind of present some material to us first is to give you, I guess, a distinctly Christian perspective on transgender. I we're mean, asking, what does the, the Bible say? The book that we believe is God's inspired word to us, What does it say? And particularly, I'm kind of coming from the approach of what does the Bible say should be a distinctly Christian response to transgender? But I hope that in seeing that, we're also going to see actually what God says in the Bible is a good message. It's a message which wants the best for people, that actually it's a life-giving message, and that we find that what God says actually, I think, can be seen to be very wise and very helpful. And so I hope we're going to see not just kind of a... um, a Christian perspective, but the goodness of that and the the purposefulness in what God says. So this is, as we know, a hugely alive topic in the world around us. It's very hard to avoid uh, the topic of transgender, whether that be in the news, in our own lives, in work context, maybe in education context, just in popular culture around us. And it's a topic which is debated. There are, over the past few years, have been many different types of debates about different aspects of this conversation. For us in the UK at the moment, the biggest debate is about the treatment of children and teenagers who identify as transgender. And you might be aware at the moment there's actually a a court case being brought against Tavistock, which is the uh, 17 and unders uh, NHS service for gender identity, where a detransitioned biological female, so a biological female who transitioned to live as a man and has now returned to living as a uh, a woman, is taking them to court, saying they shouldn't have given her the treatment they did, because she wasn't old enough to make those decisions. So this is a, a very real, very live debate, especially in that aspect of the conversation in our country at the moment. But really, I think the, um, one of the watershed moments that brought the topic of transgender into public consciousness in a totally new way was back in 2015 with the story of um, Bruce Jenner. Bruce Jenner, you may be familiar with, was a uh, famous uh, gold medal winning, I think, Olympic athlete in the decathlon, I think it was, But back in 2015, was interviewed uh, by ABC News over in the States, and revealed in that interview that though they were biologically male, and had lived all of their life, 60 or so years to that point, as a biological male, and as a man, they felt that really they were a woman. In that interview, Jenner said, for all intents and purposes, I am a woman. And a few months later, Jenner had transitioned to live life as a woman, to live as Caitlyn Jenner, and appeared in the... Vanity Fair magazine, in a now very famous cover photo and kind of a company article telling her story of her transition and her life she is now living as Caitlyn Jenner. And some other things happened around the same time as Whirling. Well, it became this kind of mixing pot for very uh, vast and very quick debates and kind of cultural discussion and change. There were debates about public toilets and who should be able to access which different public toilets about pronoun usage, those little words of he and she, uh, about gender identity in children, about prisons and where transgender prisoners should be sent to, all sorts of different things. And for many of us, we hear all these debates and we hear them regularly in the news. And often, I think for many of us, they're our, our main insight into the topic. Maybe we're really not only experience of the topic of transgender. And so it's very easy to kind of see all this stuff in the news and the media I think this is a topic about kind of pronouns and about public toilets and about prisons. But actually, the most important thing to, uh, for us to know and understand about this topic, the vital starting point, is that this ultimately isn't a topic about any of those things. It's not about pronouns, it's about people. Because behind all the news stories, behind all the debates, behind all these things, there are real people, many of whom actually are experiencing real experience of uh, distress and suffering in their lives in the area of their gender identity. And so really, especially for a Christian response, our very first thing is to stop and to realize there are real people, people made by God, loved by God, who are suffering. And that's where we need to stop and start our response from there. And let me just introduce you quickly to two of these people, two people for whom this is a real-life issue. And both of them, as it happens, are called Leo. The first one, I've got some photos that will come up, is Leo W., at birth, Leo W. was named Lily and was biologically female. And from an early age, they preferred the clothes and the toys and things traditionally associated with boys rather than with girls and began to kind of have this sense of being a boy. So much so that at age five, Lily cut off chunks of their own hair and ran to their, uh, their mum or their dad and told them they'd done it because they wanted to become a boy or they were becoming a boy. And from around that time, from age five, Lily began to live as Leo. At age 11, Leo legally changed his name to Be Leo. And at a similar time, he started taking puberty blockers, which are drugs which stop the natural onset of puberty. So they'd stop his body naturally developing into an adult female body. And then at 16, he started taking testosterone, which would go to some extent, would masculinize his body in some different ways. And his intention was then to go on to have um, sex reassignment surgery at the age of 80. And there's a BBC documentary which followed Leo and his journey towards starting to take testosterone at the age of 16. And it's just a powerful insight into the genuine distress that often is tied up for people with this um, topic. There's one point where you see Leo in a doctor's surgery, talking to his GP about his transition. And you just see he is visibly uh, moved and distressed by having to think about his body because his body is in such conflict with how he feels himself and conceives himself to be. And in an interview from a similar time, he's quoted as saying that if he was forced to live as a girl, he said, I would probably kill myself. For Leo, this is a real-life issue, a a deeply painful issue. It's about people, not about pronouns. Or another Leo, this is Leo E., Leo E was born, a biologically female, was named Louise at birth. And very sad, they had a very uh, tough childhood. Louise had to have a number of big operations when she was quite young. Um, Their mother died when they were very young as well through cancer. But actually, Louise did well at school, was active in music, theatre, baking, loved all kind of stuff like that. But also really wrestled with their gender identity. Had a sense of discomfort, actually, of being a woman and began to feel that actually they should be a man. That happened about around age eight onwards. And then back in April 2017, as a teenager, Louise, who then took on the name Leo as she began to transition, had her first appointment at um, the gender identity clinic for under-18s where they were talking about the transition. But actually, by the very next month, by May 2017, the struggle had become just too great and too painful for Leo, and he ended his life in his own bedroom at home. And uh, his family said in a kind of memorial website, they said, Leo struggled with his social anxiety and relationships and was worried what others thought of him. He finally took his own life rather than spend the rest of his life feeling there was no place in the world for those like himself. When we come to the topic of transgender, the very first thing we have to know and recognize and think about is this is about real people. It's not ultimately about pronouns or public toilets or anything else. It's about people. And that's where any Christian response, especially, must uh, take as our starting point. And so there are lots of kind of questions that are, are raised by transgender and different things we might think about. But what I want to outline to us is a Christian response based around three different elements. A heart response, a head response, and then a hope response. But before we get to how we respond to the topic of transgender, we should check we can understand and just get a few terms out on the table and discuss quickly what do we really mean when we're talking about trans. We can never respond rightly until we understand right, and often Christians have responded badly to things like transgender because actually we've spoken before we've understood. And so it's so important to stop and understand to respond out of understanding, not out of ignorance. Generally speaking, with transgender, we first have to understand two different topics, uh, two different concepts: the concepts of biological sex and of gender identity. So, biological sex is identification as male or female based on what the body in physical anatomy says. So that's kind of the, the chromosomes, whether they're XX or XY. In sexual anatomy, it's um, our gonads, our reproductive systems. And for the vast, vast majority of people. Biological sex is clear that we're either male or female based on what our physical bodies say. There are a very, very small number of cases called intersex conditions or DSDs, Differences of Sexual Development, where there can be genuine ambiguity about someone's biological sex, but it's a very small number. And we're not going to cover that in detail tonight, time. but we could, if we want to, come back to that in Q&A. But for most people, biological sex is clear from the body in that way. But then also, we need to understand gender identity or experienced gender identity. Which is a person's internal sense of and feeling of being either a man or a woman, or or neither, or kind of somewhere in between. We could say that's kind of what the mind is, what the internal self feels oneself to be. And for most people, those two things, the biological sex and gender identity, align. So most biological males feel like men, most biological females feel like women. And that's where, if you hear the term cisgender, That's used to refer to people whose biological sex and gender identity easily and neatly align like that. But for some people, there is a disconnect or even a conflict between the two. The biological sex and gender identity are different and kind of conflict and clash with each other. And for some people, that can be a very genuine experience. And that's important to stress, actually. Sometimes people assume this is all kind of a... Some sort of a fiction, but actually for some people it's a very genuine, real and what they experience as innate experience that they feel themselves internally, their true self as they might call it, to be different from actually what their body says about their biological sex. And that's actually very common in childhood. I experienced that to an extent in childhood. I remember a time when I was fairly young, believing I was internally a girl, even though externally I was a boy. And I remember it distinctly because I remember being terrified that one day I would get pregnant and then my big secret would be found out. I didn't know how these things worked at the time, but I so believed that actually internally I was a girl, I thought that might happen. And for me, as for a vast majority of people who have that experience, as I grew up and went through puberty, that feeling kind of naturally abated, it went away on its own. But for some people, it goes through adolescence into adulthood, and that feeling persists and maintains, and the difficulty and distress and disconnect they're experiencing are still there. And the term transgender is a very kind of broad term for many different experiences of and expressions of that disconnect between the biological sex and gender identity. Actually, some of the complexity of this topic comes from the fact that the term is used for a a very broad range of experiences and actually increasingly broad range, which does add a a level of complexity into the discussion. So transgender is quite a general term for that experience But then also you might have heard the term gender dysphoria. And gender dysphoria is the medical diagnosis for the distress that comes when someone experiences that disconnect between biological sex and gender identity. So the kind of medical diagnosis which a professional will give is an experience of gender dysphoria, which focuses on that distress and discomfort and pain, in a sense, that someone experiences from the experience of being transgender. So in some ways, when we talk about transgender, we're talking about a conflict of identities. There's two things, the biological sex and the gender identity, and they're in opposition to each other. And really, the fundamental question is, which one do we take as identity and which one does one embrace and live by? So with that kind of beginning understanding, which is a kind of only very quick uh, overview, really, of what trans is, but enough, hopefully, to move the conversation forward, we can start with, well, what would a, a Christian response to transgender look like? And that's going to start with our heart response. For Christians, our first question is, well, how should our hearts respond to people and to events that happen in the world around us? And to have a distinctly Christian response to something is to ask, well, how does God's heart respond? As followers of Jesus, one of the things we want to do is become more and more like Jesus and more and more to reflect his heart in our own lives and to the world around us. And so we want to stop and ask, well, how does God feel about trans people? How does God feel about those who are experiencing gender dysphoria? And In many ways, that's a really easy question to answer. How does God feel about transgender people? God loves transgender people. God has in his heart a a deep love and uh, care for every person he makes and a deep desire for them to find genuine fullness of life in life with him. Regardless of what they've done, regardless of what we've done, regardless of what we feel, regardless of how we identify ourselves, God's heart towards us is the heart of love and of care. And how do we know that? Well, there are various things we can discuss about that, various things the Bible would teach us about God's love for all people. But the one I think is interesting to reflect on with this topic is we see it most clearly in the example of Jesus. So we believe Jesus to be God incarnate, God come to earth, and when we see Jesus, we see the heart of God in action and in in interaction with people. And what I think is really interesting is lots of people in the world around us, and heartbreakingly some Christians, assume that God just kind of outright hates transgender people. In the same way, lots of people, lots of Christians even sometimes, assume that God just outright hates gay people. But as you read through the Gospels, and you don't find Jesus ever outright hating anyone. That's just not the way he interacts with people and responds to people and comes to people. You do get times when Jesus gets deeply frustrated with people, angry maybe even. But the people Jesus gets angry and deeply frustrated with are hypocritical religious leaders who actually aren't loving other people. The thing that really gets Jesus worked up when you look at him in the Gospels is people who fail to truly love other people as he's calling them to, as he's setting the example. But when Jesus meets the people whom in his day people would assume God hated, when he meets the outcasts and societies, the people thought, obviously God's going to hate them, obviously God's going to exclude them. They're the people who Jesus seems to most be drawn to, welcome in, and he invites them To eat with him, he goes to their house and he stays with them. He gives them dignity. He just gives them time and he shows love to them. You look at Jesus and you find the very people that people around him assume he would hate. Actually, he shows incredible love for. He has a a particular soft spot in his heart, actually, even for. So actually, when we come to talk about the topic of transgender and some people assume that God outright hates them, actually, I think the, the example of Jesus shows us, no, God loves transgender people. Now, God loves people living with and walking with the pain of gender dysphoria. And in fact, when it comes to gender dysphoria specifically, I think we can say with utter certainty God has deep reservoirs of care and compassion towards those experiencing that pain and that distress. Again, you look at the example of Jesus in the Gospels, and whenever Jesus encounters suffering or a distress or difficulty, he's moved with compassion and responds to compassion. Often we're told that in the text, and the word used in the original kind of speaks of being moved deep down in your bowels. Deep down within him, he's moved, and his heart breaks when he sees suffering and distress and difficulty. And so I think when God looks on the suffering of people who are experiencing gender dysphoria, he is moved with deep compassion and deep care for them. And so if we want to reflect God's heart in a response to people who are trans, then actually we want to shape our hearts as well. To be people who genuinely carry god's love for those who are trans and those who experience gender dysphoria and those who when we hear stories actually those who are experiencing gender dysphoria have the the privilege of meeting them and interacting with them actually allow we we allow our hearts to be broken and to be full of compassion in the way jesus's heart is broken for them and full of compassion we're called to kind of reflect that heart of god and the reality is that christians have often done very badly at how we've thought about and talked about transgender and how we've interacted with transgender people. So many transgender people have heartbreaking stories of how Christians have treated them. So I think there's a place for us as Christians to acknowledge that and actually for the Christian church to apologize that we corporately have done that. And it's a moment for us actually to recognize how God is calling us to love people. And the reason I put the heart response first is because it's kind of the most important one. You see, the things that come up after this, they're not truly Christian if they're not done with this heart in place first. If we're not reflecting Jesus' heart, there's no point actually in doing any of the rest of it. So the first level of a, a Christian response to this topic is a heart response, a heart of genuine love and genuine compassion. And then we come on to a head response. How should we think about transgender? And this is the point at which many of the, the very big controversial tough questions you might be aware of come to the surface questions like well are some people born in the wrong bodies should there even be a binary in and or of man and woman, and male and female how should we help people who do experience that kind of disconnect in and of themselves and these are huge questions complex questions we won't tackle all of them tonight although some of them we can talk about more in q and a but underlying all of them, ultimately, I think, is a fundamental question about identity and about the true self. Where do we find it? How do we find the true self, the true us? And very often, transgender and the, kind of the cultural view of it is presented as people finding their true selves. It's talked about in identity language. It's seen to be an answer, of who, an answer to the question of who am I? And who am I is a good question to ask. A very kind of human question, a question we need to ask and have a good answer to, actually, to live and to flourish in life. We all want to and we all need to know who we are. And the culture around us rightly tells us that when we find who we are, we need to embrace that and we need to express that to find fullness of life. And that is totally true. I like to point out to people here that one of the greatest philosophers of our day, Mr. Walt Disney, has taught us this helpfully in Toy Story 4. If you've seen Toy Story 4, the latest film, there's a new character, my favourite character, I think, called Forky, who's this um, uh, fork, or spork, actually a spoon-fork thing, who is made out of rubbish and made into a toy by the um, character named Bonnie, I think. And early in the film, Forky thinks that he is still rubbish and thinks that he is still trash, and so he wants to keep running and going into the bin because he thinks that's where he'll find fullness of life because that's who he is. But actually, part of the story of the film is that Forky learns to understand he's no longer trash, as they call it in America, no longer rubbish. He's now a toy. He's been made as a toy. And so actually, he's not going to find fulfillment back in the bin with the rest of the rubbish. He's going to find fulfillment with the other toys and letting children play with him, because that's what he's created to do. He's found who he is, and when he knows who he is, he needs to embrace that to find fullness of life. And that narrative is true. It's true that when we find who we are, We need to embrace that to live that out in order to really find satisfaction in life. But what's interesting when we come to the topic of transgender and how the world around us often views it is often the question, who am I, is answered before actually the more important or the more primary question is asked of, how do I find who I am? You see, we answer the question, who am I, but you can't answer that until you first work out, well, how do I actually find who I am? Where does the answer to that question come from? And really, that's where the great disconnect comes. And that's the was then focus on and look into, how do I find who I am? Where does identity come from? What does it look like to find a truly life-giving identity? And what the world around us says, modern culture says, and this very much um, is applied to the topic of transgender, is that our identity is found inside of ourselves. We might call it internal identity formation. And the narrative kind of goes, we find inside ourselves our feelings and our desires, and that's our true self. That's the, the real me. The real me is the me inside in my feelings and desires, what I find there. And therefore, it doesn't matter what anything external says. It doesn't matter what my body says. doesn't matter what my community says, what tradition, what my past says, anything like that. Actually, what matters is how I feel inside, what I find inside. And therefore, the narrative goes, we should embrace the internal self, however we feel ourselves to be inside, and we should live that out to find fullness of life. And this is often seen in um, transgender coming-out stories, and people share their transgender. Often you find that this narrative of internal identity is very much at the fore. So going back to Caitlyn Jenner as a kind of primary example, and some very poignant words from one of her later interviews about this. She said, I had a lot of conversations and kind of came to a revelation that maybe I should be honest with myself about who I am, identity, who I am, and let that person, the woman who's lived inside me for my entire life, finally have an opportunity to live. For Caitlyn Jenner, being transgender and transitioning was about admitting who she really was, about identity, and admitting that the internal, the woman she felt had always lived within, that's the real her, and now it was time to give her a life and an opportunity to live. This narrative Kind of what we might call an affirming approach to transgender. The approach which says that transitioning is the answer, and you read what your gender identity says, not what your biological sex says. And so we're told that identity is found internally. That's the true self. And that's got to be embraced and expressed to find fullness of life. But we should pause at that point and It says, well, who tells us that that's the way we should find identity? Or, who has any authority to tell us that's the right way and the best way actually to find identity? And really, there are some big problems with it. The whole internal identity narrative thing has some fairly fundamental issues. One issue is the things it's based on, <coughs> our feelings and desires, can change. We all know that. Our feelings and desires, they change. Our, even it's been shown sexual orientation and gender identity can change over time. So therefore, they can't be a kind of firm, solid, stable basis for identity. And we all want a solid, static identity for it to be life-giving. If your desires might change, how do you know what to embrace to find the real you? Another similar problem is we all know we might have desires and feelings that contradict. I really want this, and I really want this, but I can't have both of them. So which one do I embrace as my true desire, as my true self, and which one do I follow in order to find real life? If I want a job up in Scotland, but a relationship in London, I can't have both of them, which desire is really the route to true fulfillment and to my true self? This kind of doesn't really work. And ultimately, the whole thing doesn't work because it's always selective. The narrative is look inside yourself, find your desires and your feelings, that's who you really are. But actually, we all know, and we all admit, that we might look inside ourselves and find desires and feelings that are not good, and that we would not make our identity. So in our culture, we might look inside ourselves and find that I don't know, we're really bloodthirsty and we really want to walk down the street and kill lots of people. In our culture, we're not going to go, well, that's who I am. You can't stop me. doesn't matter what history says, doesn't matter what the law says or what tradition says. This is me. You can't stop me. No one really believes that who we are inside, how we feel, what we desire is who we really are. Actually, culture is giving us this kind of this selective grid teach us to pick and choose the desires we find which match with what culture says we should be or who culture says we should be. And so we take those things and we make them our identity. And so this whole thing of making identity internally, it really doesn't work. It's It can't give the solid, stable, life-giving type of identity every person wants, every person needs. And there's no authority over the reason to choose our gender identity over other feelings it might have. Actually, there's no authority, no explanation as to why we should choose gender identity rather than biological sex, what the body says. So, therefore, we need an alternative source of identity. We need a different way of answering the question how do I find who I am? Some people reject the internal, they go for the external. They'll base their identity on what other people think of them, or more often, it's what they think other people think of them. But that doesn't work either. Because then you're always trying to perform some sort of acts that people think well of you, and it's exhausting, and no one can keep up the act all the time. It just doesn't really work at all. The answer, I think, the only place you can find a solid, kind of stable, life-giving basis for identity is an identity that is given to you, kind of wholesale and unchanging. Ultimately, the only truly life-giving source of identity is from God. And as humans... We're designed to get our identity from God, which, if God made us, makes total sense. It makes sense that if God made us, we should find our identity from him. Again, Forky, Toy Story 4, helps us here. Forky has to learn his identity. The reason he's no longer rubbish, but he's now a toy, is because his creator, Bonnie, says he's a toy. What makes him a toy is that his creator says, this is who he is, and this is how he has now been made. It makes sense that a creator should tell the creation who they are. And the Bible tells us that for humans, our identity given, is given to us by God is rooted in how he's made us and what he says about us. About us. And the first and fundamental thing the Bible says about what it means to be human, or a human identity, is that we are made in the image of God. So in the opening chapter of the Bible, one of the creation accounts, when humans are made, we're said to be made in the image of God. It's something given to us, not based on how we feel, not based on desires and stuff inside of us, not based on what we do, what other people think of us, purely based on what God says and how he has made us. It's solid. It's stable. It's static. It can't change. It can't be taken away. And in the Bible, the image of God is really important. The image of God is the reason why the Bible says every single human life is worthy of preservation and protection. It's actually a marker of God's protection. It's meant to be a protective mark over people. And the image of God is, in a sense, primary identity, <coughs> biblically speaking, for every human being. And it's rooted in what God says, not in the internal, not in the external in the world around us. But What's really interesting, if you read that story in Genesis 1, it goes from the image of God to being created male and female. The key verse says, so God created humanity in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And so the author places creation as male or female kind of in parallel lines with being made in the image of God, and that's really important. That tells us some really important things. Firstly, and very importantly, it tells us both men and women, males and females, are made in the image of God. We have completely, utterly uh, equal worth, and equal dignity before God. It also tells us that this identity of being male or female is given by God in how he makes us and what he says over us. In the same way, the image is given to us in God's making of us and speaking over us. And so our gendered identity isn't something we have to create. It's not a performance we have to perform to try and achieve it. It's not something we have to discover by looking inside ourselves and kind of feeling out who we feel ourselves to be. It's something we receive through creation and actually receive through the body that God has given us. Because God speaks to us through our physical bodies. As we said, for the vast, vast majority of people, biological sex is clear from the physical body that we are born with. And in a biblical worldview, a Christian worldview, the body is a a good thing and a good part of the world. It's not an annoying distraction. It's not getting in the way of our true selves. Actually, it's part of our true selves. And many Christians and many non-Christians, we usually have a very kind of um, a negative view of the physical world around us, But actually, the Christian view is a very positive view of the physical world, including the physical body. It's a a good thing, a gift of God given to us. And of course, we know, thanks to Forky and Walt Disney, that embracing who we are and living that out in our lives is is the route to true fulfillment, to true life. And that's why the Bible kind of consistently expects that we're going to live out our biological sex as those who are male or those who are female. It's why there are no exceptions anywhere throughout the Bible that we might live differently to what our biological sex would suggest about us. And it's why the Bible sees any crossing of gendered boundaries in that way, any living out of line with our biological sex as a very negative thing. So the Bible's message to us is to call people to live in line with their biological sex. But that raises some very big and complex questions about what does that look like? What does it mean to live out as a ma- live life out as a male or as a female? Does it mean that men have to be you know, tough and meat-eating and sport-loving and women have to be quiet and enjoy crafts and pretty things and stuff like that? Thankfully, I don't think it does mean that. Actually, I think the Bible's answer is quite surprising. Surprising often to Christians and to people who aren't Christians. I think the Bible only says two things about what it means to truly live out an identity as someone who's male or someone who's female. One thing it seems to say is that our biological sex should be observable from our external presentation. So the clothes we're wearing, our hairstyling, different things, they should externally express the biological sex that God has given to us in our physical body. And in a sense, of course, that starts in the physical body. Our secondary sex characteristics mean that men and women look different. That is actually kind of begun in what God has given us. We're to have our biological sex observable in how we present ourselves, and on the flip side, we're not to seek to um, uh, cause people to believe that we are of a different biological sex to that which we are born with. And the second thing I think the Bible says is is there are certain different roles for men and women, but they're specifically in the context of marriage relationships or in church context and church leadership structure. But often, we as Christians have, and just the world around us, kind of go further than that and see many more divisions seeing what it means to live as a man or what it means to live as a woman. In culture, you actually often see that in the stories of transgender people. Because often, actually, it's kind of stereotyped understandings of being a man or a woman, which are used to diagnose transgender. The one that always sticks out to me, there was a a documentary about transgender children a number of years ago. And there was a dad who taught... And he said this, has got the quote, he said, I knew my son was a girl when I saw him run. It was diagnosis through stereotypes. The thing that convinced him that actually his biological, um, uh, biological male child was actually a girl was the way he run, ran. Because we have ideas of what it means to look like and be like a man or a woman. But also Christians are terrible at this as well. We often have lots of totally unbiblical gender stereotypes in jokes we make and things we say and even events we run in our churches and different kind of things. And that often, I think, has a very negative impact. Many people, I think, end up feeling that they're not a real man or not a real woman because they don't kind of fit neatly into the boxes that culture or that Christians have told them they should um, how they should be and how they should feel and how they should live like. We create very restricted and uh, narrow views of what it means to be a man or a woman. And the people don't fit in, and they don't feel comfortable, and don't feel like they're a real man or a real woman. But these things aren't there in the Bible. We've said, actually, in the Bible, being a man or a woman is a, a given identity. You're already a man because God says you're a man, or you're already a woman because God says you're a woman. And now you get to live that out. It's who you are. So now it's how you can be. Now you can live it out. And in my own life, even just in the last few years, this has helped me, like, hugely. I only realized a few years ago that I'd lived with a constant sense after kind of outgrowing that more slightly more intense experience of gender dysphoria, I'd still lived with a sense of not really being a real man. And I'd often kind of distance myself from the male group. So I would say things like, well, he would say that because he's a guy, which would clearly going the guys are over there and I'm over here with the girls. I secretly harbored this deep desire that one of my female friends would invite me to her baby shower or to her hen party, and I hated uh, stag dudes because I just didn't like being in the male environment. I didn't feel I fitted in, and actually, I wanted secretly to be embraced by the girls and to be part of that group. Really, I just didn't think I fitted in the box, so I didn't feel I was a real man. But realising that what the Bible says is, "I'm a man because God says I'm a man, because that's how He has created me to be," has given me such freedom. Is so it realised I am a man, and therefore I can embrace my likes and my dislikes and my personality? And it doesn't change that fact. So for me, it means I've been able to kind of embrace my love of musicals and of Downton Abbey and of pretty things and stuff like that. And it doesn't change the fact I'm a man because God says I'm a man. And the fact that I don't like beer and steak and go-karting and paintballing and a lot of the very stereotypically masculine things doesn't change that at all because this identity is being given to me. And I reckon there are loads of people in churches and just in society in general who feel they don't really make the cut as a man or a woman because of these really unhelpful, unnecessary stereotypes. And just actually taking little steps to to, uh, kind of wean ourselves of those, to cut those out, could help a lot of people, I think. But we should stop there, and we should come back, and we should ask, well, what about people, though, who experience much more extreme gender dysphoria? There'll be people for whom just um, recognising the impact of stereotypes doesn't change the fact that internally they feel themselves to be different to what their biological sex would say. And it might not change that, very deep distress and deep um, pain and suffering that that can cause. What does all this mean for someone who's trans, someone who has extreme gender dysphoria? I think there's a few things. I think it does mean we can say it's not possible to be born in the wrong body. So the, the whole concept of being born in the wrong body relies on the idea that your body isn't part of your true self, and there's just no, philosophically, no good reason to say that, and biblically, that's not the way the Bible presents it. The Bible is a good gift of God given to us. It's part of our true self. It tells us about who we are. The whole idea of being, wrong, uh, being born in the wrong body doesn't stand up philosophically. There's all those problems we talked about, the internal identity thing. And actually, this doesn't fit a biblical picture of what it means to be an embodied human. A human who has a body, and the body is key to who we are. And for the majority of people, as we said, including the majority of people with gender dysphoria, our bodies are clear on who we are. There's no reason to think there's some problem with the body which is misleading us about who we are. But that isn't, of course, to deny the fact that some people still experience that very real disconnect, very real uh, conflict and clash within themselves between biological sex and gender identity, and there's not to deny the genuine pain and difficulty that brings. Which is why, actually, a Christian response must also then have our final step. It must also bring a hope response. We have to ask, well, what kind of hope, what help does Jesus bring to someone who might be living with very extreme gender dysphoria, who might day by day experience the the pain and the difficulty of that? Someone who, just recognizing the stereotypes, actually it's not made a particularly big impact on them, and Jacob recognizing they're a man or woman because of what God says, even though they might believe it in their head, actually it's not changing how they're really feeling and experiencing themselves to be. We're really asking, what hope does Jesus offer to those with gender dysphoria? And here I think, really, we're asking a question about suffering. We're asking, actually, when this experience of suffering is experienced in life, what is the hope that Jesus brings? What is the help that Jesus brings? And I think this is the most, uh, the most helpful and life-giving and fruitful way of thinking about the topic of gender as foreign trends as a topic of suffering and how we help in that, rather than the topic of identity and how that is embraced. And here there's kind of so much we can say. The Bible has loads to say on suffering. Interestingly, not a whole amount on where it comes from, but a lot to say about how we respond to it, how we walk through life with it. So there are all manner of things we could say, but I'm going to highlight two parts of a biblical uh, equipping to walk through suffering. We might kind of touch on more, I guess, in Q&A. I think one of the useful places to start is to start by understanding God's big story. One of the things we get from the Bible is this sense of we are in a big story of what God is doing throughout all of time. And actually understanding the story and where we are and where we're going is one of the ways the Bible tells us to make sense of, I guess, and just to gain strength to walk through suffering in our life. So the story starts at the beginning of the timeline with creation where God makes everything and everything is as it should be. And we're kind of all as we should be, as it were. And our bodies and our minds always line up. Everything is good, it's working rightly, and there's no pain, there's no suffering or distress or difficulty. But very quickly, the story reaches a problem, which in Christian theology we've called the fool, where humans rebel against God. <clears throat> we fail ultimately to trust that what he says is best, that his way is best for us. And we try to find a better way by going our own way. And there's all manner of things that happen when that happens and when we what the Bible calls sin. And part of the thing that happens is God's perfect world and creation gets broken. Things are out of place and damaged and kind of disordered and then pain and suffering and difficulty enter into the world such that every single human being experiences some of that in our lives. In our own bodies and our minds and in our, the world around us, we all experience the fact that there are things that are not as they should be. That there's something about this world where something is kind of broken, something's gone wrong. Some things are here which shouldn't actually be here. But as the story goes on, Jesus comes and <coughs> Jesus comes to bring redemption. He comes to put to rights what's been broken. He comes to fix it. He comes ultimately to win the victory over sin, the very thing which brought all the problems into the world in the first place. And so as he comes and lives the perfect life and as he comes and dies on a cross and takes the punishment of God for all of those sins and as he's raised to the dead and is victorious over all that stuff, triumphing over it, he's won the victory to put everything to rights. He's won the victory to restore us back to how things should have been. And so the end of the story is that there's a day when Jesus comes back, when every person stands before him, everyone's judged according to what they've done and when Jesus brings a new creation, And we get new resurrected bodies if we're a a person of God, part of the people of God. And we spend eternity with him in a a perfect new world where everything that was wrong has been put right, where our minds and bodies are again completely restored to full wellness and where every bit of distress and suffering and pain is taken away. Even we're told God himself will come and will wipe away every tear that we've shed. And the Bible so often tells us to look forward to that point. So this story helps us. The story helps us understand why is it that some people experience themselves to be not how their bodies were stated to be, why is there this sense of something's not quite as it should be? Well, we can explain that. This is, I think, the only worldview really that can explain why some things are not as they should be, and we all have that sense of that's what the world is like. But also it says, "Look down the timeline and there is a day coming." and there's some of this kind of uh, sustaining power in knowing that actually there is a day coming when the pain and the suffering and the distress end. And that's not to belittle the reality of it in the here and now. But actually the promise God gives us is that at that point, any suffering, even the most horrific suffering here, will somehow seem light and momentary because of the wonderful glory that is actually there. There's real power in this story to uh, sustain us and encourage us and help us to keep going. There is genuine hope. And sometimes the things and suffering in our life, we experience uh, change and uh, resolution the here and now. And sometimes we don't. We don't know why that is. But the promise of the Bible is there's a point when there's total resolution and healing and, and restoration of all things coming for us. So part of a distinctly Christian response to suffering, including the suffering of gender dysphoria, is to look down that storyline to keep our eyes fixed on what's coming. But that rightly raised the question of, well, what about now? What about the day in doubt life of someone who's living with intense suffering from gender dysphoria? Again, so much we could say, but maybe just a few things to draw out of that story. Sometimes, I just mentioned, sometimes it is the case that Jesus applies his victory now. What Jesus did on the cross really was to write and sign a whole load of checks. And every time I use this now, I think I'm not much longer able to use this illustration, but hopefully most of us in the room know what a check is. And he writes inside them. Some of them he's already cashed in. And we're already enjoying the fruits of them now. That actually, if we trust in Jesus, we get to become a child of God, loved by God, delighted by God. All our sins forgiven. We get to enjoy intimate relationship with him. But some of them, in his wisdom, we don't know why, in his wisdom, he's still holding on to them. Holding on to them till that day. And on that day, that's when they get cashed in. So sometimes there might be a measure of change at this point in life. That's one thing that Jesus might do to help us in the face of suffering. But sometimes that doesn't happen. But when that doesn't happen, Jesus doesn't say, we'll just kind of keep on going on the hard slog and see if you can make it. Actually, for those who come, become his followers and follow him, there's at least two, many more, but two are highlight things he gives us to help us. One of the things is he gives us himself. He gives us the Holy Spirit who comes to dwell inside of us, who empowers us and comforts us and leads us and guides us. He doesn't leave us on our own to work these things through. But the promise is that anyone who trusts in Jesus, he comes to dwell within, and he's there helping us and equipping us. But also, he doesn't leave us on his own. He doesn't say, we're going to walk this path and see how you get on as a Lone Ranger. He says, come and be part of a church. Come be part of a family. Be adopted into a new family who love and support, and who will weep with you when you need to weep, and who will mourn with you when you need to mourn. and Actually, when you're ready to celebrate, we'll celebrate with you as well. We're a community who actually are meant to sit in the pain with each other and acknowledge it. But all the while, we're pointing back to when Jesus died for us, which is like the solid proof that he still loves us. And we're pointing forward to the promise of the day when he comes back, when all of it will be put to rights, when all of the suffering and difficulty will end. And there's kind of, again, a sustaining power that comes from actually walking through suffering, walking through it in a church family, in community support, in just having arms around each other in that way. As this, I think, is just part, really, of a, a Christian hope response to gender dysphoria, how God can offer hope to those living with and walking with the genuine suffering and distress that can come from this. So that, in summary, is, I think, the key tenets, the key aspects of a Christian response to transgender. We've got to start with the heart. What actually is God's heart? Where well, it's a heart of love and compassion. So if we're a follower of Jesus, that's where we want to start, in our know, response to people who are trans, have gender dysphoria, But then also it's important to think about the head. We want to wrestle with what God says and what is the route to fullness of life? It's embracing our true identity and our true identity is given to us by God, inscribed in our bodies. And then finally we've got to have the, the hope response in there. How do we bring hope and help to those who might be walking through life with the experience of distress and suffering that comes from gender dysphoria? We'll pause there and take a few moments for a kind of uh, leg stretching thing. Why not turn to people around you and just kind of say, what's the thing that stuck out to you? What do you really disagree with and want to ask about? Or what was really helpful? Just get your thoughts going a little bit. So we'll come back in just a moment and have some kind of Q&A and discussion from there.